call it St. Edward's. Um, He said this, Holiness is a most beautiful and holy thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were melancholy, morose, sour, and an unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and lovely. Edwards is touching on something as he grew up in a pastor's home that sometimes in childhood you hear the word holiness and you think of it as something boring, something sour, something morose. But he says it's a sweet, a beautiful, a lovely thing. Because holiness is reflective of the character of Almighty God. In fact, this is what we see in our text in Leviticus chapter 19. This command, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And this section spells out what holiness looks like in the life of of an ancient Israelite, and ultimately we can see what it looks like in the life of a Christian today. We find ourselves in the context of Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus, if you remember, it's on the tail end of Exodus. And so the Israelites had just been delivered out of Egypt, handpicked out of Egypt, and... God had brought the most mighty nation in the world, the Egyptians, to their knees through these multitude of plagues. And they're waiting to go into the promised land. And, and it's not till the book of Joshua that they actually go into the promised land. So there's a very real sense in which we can sympathize with the Israelites because they've been delivered, but they're not yet in the promised land. And we as Christians today, we have been delivered. We have been rescued from the power of sin, but yet we're not in the promised land. We're still waiting. We're kind of in that already, but not yet. And we need to know how we're to live in the already, but not yet. How we're to live between Egypt and the promised land. Well, Moses helps us out here. And this this whole chapter is uh, at first reading, it looks like almost like a list of unrelated laws, but there is some order and cohesion here. In fact, the phrase, I am Yahweh, or I am Yahweh your God, is repeated all throughout this section. I think it's like some 16 times throughout this chapter. In verses 3 through, through verse 18, it's repeated seven times. And then in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, it's repeated another seven times. And there's actually a corresponding list of 21 laws in each of these sections. And at the middle, at the heart of this, is the summary of it all, the summary which Jesus points to, namely to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this whole chapter is going to help us to understand how to live a holy, a separate life, a distinct life. Through loving our neighbor. Now, let's look at verse 1. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak 
to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. So again, God speaks to Moses and Moses is to speak to all the Israelites in, in the preamble of this, of all these commands that we see here, some, what did I say, 21 and 21, 42, my math's not always great, some 42 commands in this chapter, the preamble of it is that I am Yahweh your God. Now, if you notice, that should look somewhat familiar. Some of you have memorized uh, the Ten Commandments, some of you young people Uh, And you remember Exodus 20, where God first gives those Ten Commandments, it starts out, and God spake all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so the preamble to all those summary laws, those Ten Commandments, is... I am Yahweh your God who delivered you out of Egypt. So this is almost certainly a kind of shorthand for this. So God is reminding them of who he is and what he has done for them. And so this is important so that this list of commands is not mere moralism. In other words, these commands are to be obeyed in light of the reality of who God is and what he's done. Namely, God's grace towards the Israelites was supposed to fuel their motivation to obey Him. And so it is in the Christian life, right? Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live righteously, soberly in this present age. God's grace teaches and instructs us. And so it's very important that we understand this in moving forward, that this is not just a list of do's and don'ts. This is in in the context of God redeeming you. And also, as we look at this verse, we see at the end of this chapter, this is how he, he ends At the end, if you look at the end of verse 19, he says in verse 36, you shall have just balances and just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am Yahweh. So the Lord wants us to live holy in light of his grace. Also, when you look at verse 3, verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 19, you realize that I, I think that might be in the New Testament somewhere, and you would be correct if you were thinking that. We find it in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 14, again, after Peter highlights how God has saved them, has rescued them. He says this in 114, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ. Do you see the parallels there? Peter is saying, in light of salvation, in light of you being redeemed with precious blood, remember, of a lamb, how had the Israelites been redeemed? They had been delivered out of Egypt through the Passover with the sacrifice of a lamb and the Passover meal. And in, the, in that context, uh, uh, Peter says, be holy. And it's, it's an echo of Leviticus chapter 19. In light of God's salvation, in light of redemption, be holy. And so, how are we to be holy? Well, first of all, you need to ask, what, what is holiness, right? Well, this kind of holiness that we are to imitate, it's in the character of God. Be holy as I am holy. To be holy is to be distinct and devoted. God is set apart and devoted to himself. And so God's people are to be set apart and devoted to him. And this also highlights that we are to imitate God. Now, there are certain things we can't imitate God with, right? God is omniscient. He knows everything. Some of you think you know everything, but you don't. Sometimes we like to act like we know everything, but we don't. We're not omniscient. We can't imitate God with that, but we can evidently imitate His holiness. And so this actually harkens all the way back to the first volume of the Torah that Moses wrote, namely the book of Genesis. Remember when God created man in Genesis 1.27? It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made man in his own image. Man is supposed to imitate and image Almighty God in certain ways. And one of these ways is with holiness, being devoted to God. And again, this is in the context of God regularly telling the Israelites, you're not to be like the world around you. Sometimes children come to their parents and say, Dad, can we do such and such? And... Parents say, no. Oh, but dad, they're doing it. So-and-so's family is doing it. Did you ever hear anything like that? Any of you kids ever uttered something like that? Sometimes I remember my dad would say things like, well, you know what? They do that because they're a part of that family. But you, son, you're a mager. In a similar way, God is telling this to the ancient Israelites. Everybody else is doing this, but not you. You are mine. I am Yahweh, your God. I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. And so the rest of our time here, we are going to look at four different spheres in which we are to be holy. The first is holiness with our children and child rearing. 
Notice verse 3. He says, you, he doesn't say that, he says that in chapter 18. He says, every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. Every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. That's an interesting command, is it not? I'm supposed to be afraid of mom and dad? Well, that's what the text says. We need to explain a little bit what that means, right? But what you'll find out as you go through Exodus chapter 19 is there are, if not verbatim commands straight from Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, commands that are run parallel to them. And you know the command, the fifth commandment of Exodus chapter 20 is what? To honor your father and mother. And so here we see this command to fear your mother and your father. And and I think this helps us to understand that when the Bible speaks of fear, it's not merely being afraid or scared of something because the Bible often uses this response in relationship to God, right? So that in, in the, the parallels, I think, are important here because parents are representatives of God to their children. And so there's a very real sense in which a child's relationship to his parent is very similar and runs parallel to their relationship with God. If the parent's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, what, what were parents supposed to be doing? Well, if you look back earlier or uh, later on in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells the Israelites, that there's that famous Shema in 6.4. He says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So th- this is, this is kind of like the, the constitution for the Jewish people, right? This is, this is the, the summary statement of their God. God is one. The Israelites didn't believe in the pantheon of all the, the variety of pagan gods. The, the Egyptians had all these gods. The Canaanites, the land where they were going, they had all these gods. But not you, Israelites. You have one God, and his name is Yahweh. And then, verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he tells the parents, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so God is telling parents, I am Yahweh, this is who I am, and now you are to teach your children who I am. And you're to teach them my words, that this is to be a regular conversation. And so what we see here is that, in a very real sense, parents are something of the prophetic voice for their children, the voice of God 
for their children. And children are to fear their parents as they are to fear Yahweh. They are to submit. To fear means to revere, to subject oneself to. Now, it's not, again, being scared of so that you run from them, but it is a fear that reveres and draws to them, that listens to and subjects your will to their will. So, is this, as we look at these commands, is this something that comes up in the New Testament as well? Nod your head, yes. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor. Your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he calls the children in the congregation to obey their parents in the Lord. And then he quotes from Exodus chapter 20, which again is a parallel here to fearing mother and father. And he says, honor, he quotes Exodus, says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that you may live long in the land. And so we can see there's tremendous continuity, right, between the testaments with this command. That one of the first things that God is concerned about with his people living holy is with sexual purity. We saw that in chapter 18, but then the first command in this chapter is related to family life. He wants his families to be different than the rest of the world. He wants children to fear their parents, to honor, to respect them, to obey them. So, let me speak to our children here. Children, are you fearing? Are you honoring? Are you obeying your parents? If you're still underneath their authority, still eating their food, still using their toilets, God commands you to fear mother and father, to subject your will to their will. Do you obey right away, all the way, and with a smile on your face? This is what God calls you to. You are not to fight back. You are not to talk back. You are to close your mouth and submit to their authority. This is God's design. This is God's plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's to obey your parents. And 
And I know this can sometimes be especially difficult as young people begin to move into those teenage years. You're kind of beginning to move towards adulthood and you know more and you think you know more than you know. But to try to contradict your parents. Now there is a place to respectfully appeal to them on occasions. You may see something that they don't see but it always has to be with a Honor, respect, and fear. And if not, you're disobeying the Lord. God is the one who gave them to you as your parents. He is the one who's placed them in your life, hopefully accurately representing Almighty God to you, teaching you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Also, parents, are you, are you a voice for God in the life of your children? Are you an ambassador? Are you functioning like an ambassador for your children, representing them? teaching them God's word, instructing them in God's ways, counseling them according to God's will and God's ways. This is what God calls you to. Are you growing and thriving in your relationship with God? After all, Deuteronomy 6, remember, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then he says, Teach your sons diligently. In other words, one of the best ways that we can teach our children is by modeling for them a growing relationship with the Lord where we, in our love, are growing towards the Lord. And they can see that. God commands children to fear and honor their parents but are you living honorably? Are you helping them in this regard? Or are you provoking them? Tempting them not to honor you because of your dishonorable life. Now this kind of establishing of, of the authority and helping your children to fear you, it starts early in life. I mean, if, if, if they've not been instructed in, in obeying and respecting early in life, then they're not going to do it when they hit the teenage years. I can guarantee you that. And so it starts with implementing biblical principles of parenting to help your young people know the boundaries that when they push against your authority, you are going to push back. To expect obedience from them. And this is part of how we demonstrate holiness in the home. So that our families as God's people are to be different than the families of the rest of the world. To be devoted to the Lord. So that's 
holiness in children and child rearing, but secondly, holiness in the calendar. Notice the second part of verse 3 says, And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Again, this is drawing almost directly from the fourth commandment that we see in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, which I know some of you have memorized. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days God created the heavens and earth and sea and all that in them dwells and rested. But on the seventh, or, uh, um, on the seventh day he rested. I should have just read it because I'm misquoting it. You shall not work, you, your son, your daughter, your male, your female slave, your cattle, your sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11 of Exodus 20. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So this was something that was distinctive of the Israelites. They were to work for six days. And on the seventh day, which began uh, on the, the Jewish clock, on Friday evening, they were to cease from work. There was to be no commerce, no trading. Everything was to come. The economy was to come to a sudden stop. But this actually was not the only Sabbath. This was the weekly Sabbath. But as we, when we get to Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to see all these holy days, holidays. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, and at the top of it is the weekly Sabbath. In other words, all these holidays that were on the Jewish calendar that we'll, we'll, begin, we'll see when we get to chapter 23, the significance of all the symbolism and all the ritual and all of that, that this was part of God's calendar for His people. And it was a serious command. So much that when you look at Numbers chapter 15, there was a man who was engaged in work on the Sabbath. In 1530, it says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, that one is blaspheming Yahweh. That person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Verse 32 of Numbers 15. Now the sons of Israel were in the wilderness. And they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him near to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then Yahweh said to Moses, that man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And so this command was a serious command. The Israelites were not to do any work in the book of Numbers when this man with a high hand, knowing that God had told them to rest on the seventh day, he defies Yahweh and goes and gathers wood on the Sabbath, and God strikes him. God's instructions is for the Israelites to execute him. 
So this certainly helps us to understand God was exercising his sovereignty over their calendar. And on the seventh day, he wanted them to rest. And with the different holidays that he lays out in chapter 23, they were to observe those holy days. They were to be devoted. And again, this would have made them distinct from the rest of the world. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if you're fellow Hittite comes to you and he's trying to trade with you on Saturday, say, no, I can't trade. Why? Well, it's Sabbath. It's to be set apart. I'm to rest on the Sabbath. Our God commands us to rest. And so all the surrounding nations had to observe and see, oh, wow, these people are different. They don't work on the seventh day. And so it was a sign of their covenant relationship with God that they were different, that they had been redeemed by their God, and God was in control of their calendar. And so certainly we can see application with this for us, right? God is sovereign over our time. And we want to live holy lives, lives that are distinct and devoted to the Lord. We want to set certain priorities in our life. We don't want to subject ourselves to the priorities of the world around us. I was just having this conversation yesterday with uh, another brother whose children are roughly the same ages as our children. And it's at that stage where kids start getting involved in sports and different children involved in different sports. And of course, these little league sports, they're not thinking, well, people need to go to church on Sunday, and so we're not going to call for our practice at 10 a.m. on Sunday. (laughs) That's not what they're thinking. They don't care. But you're supposed to. You're supposed to because God controls your calendar. Now, when we look at this Sabbath command and come to the New Testament, we see several different passages that would seem to suggest, like the other Jewish holy days, has been fulfilled in Christ. And so, if you read Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food or drink. So evidently there, had, there was some group within Colossae that were trying to implement the dietary laws of, of the book of Leviticus that we see in chapters uh, 11 through 15 or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So some were saying that you should be observing these, this holy diet and these holy days. But verse 17 Paul says, these things are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. That these things were pictures that have their fulfillment with the coming of Christ. But now Christ is here so that it's, it's no longer binding upon us to observe those holy days and that holy diet. We see something similar in Romans chapter 14 and verse 5 where 
Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and there was Jewish Christians and there was Gentile Christians, and he's uniting them under the banner of the gospel. But when we get to chapters 14 and 15, he's trying to help them to see their unity in Christ, and there's certain things that they shouldn't divide over. And evidently, there was still some Jewish Christians who were observing different Jewish holy days, just as you may come across certain uh, Christians today who may observe certain Jewish holy days, Passover or or, or uh, Feast of Booths, or, or even there are some Christians who observe a kind of Christian Sabbath. In Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One person judges one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, Paul's allowing for differences for some Jewish Christians still observing a Sabbath, and others not. And, and, and he's basically saying, you know, don't make this a point of division amongst you. And to be sure, there are some well-meaning Christians today who believe Sunday is a Christian Sabbath. They're still looking for a verse for that. It's probably right next to that verse on baptizing infants in the white spaces between the book of index and the book of maps. But they're good brothers, they're faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord and their conscience is that Sunday has become the Sabbath. But I do think that these things have been fulfilled in Christ. Although Christ should be king over our calendar. And you ask yourself the question, why would, well in what way? What is the picture? What is the ceremony related to? Well think about it. You work for six days. And then God tells you, you can't work on this day. But things are tight. You have to feed mouths you got to pay bills. But God says, don't work on the seventh day. And you as a faithful covenant believer say, okay, what, what is required of you to not work? You have to trust, right? It's actually going to come up as well in, in when we get to Leviticus 25 with the, the year of Jubilee. There were certain calendar years where Israelites were not only not to work on the seventh day, they were not to harvest their crops at all. Now that, I mean, that took tremendous trust in the Lord, did it not? And so it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, there is a Sabbath for Christians. This is the Sabbath. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, the Sabbath becomes a picture of trusting in Christ. The Sabbath for New Testament Christians is fulfilled in the reality that Christ has done all the work. He has paid the price. And so you have to trust in Him to do the work on your behalf. 
So it's no wonder that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. Come to me and you can rest. You don't have to be on the treadmill of good works the rest of your life. You can rest in me. And so, friend, if, if this is you this morning, if you are trying to earn your favor before Almighty God, you're trying to win acceptance from God, I want to tell you on the authority of God's word, God has worked for you in the gospel. Jesus paid the price. And so you have to cease from trying to earn favor before God and to trust Him to do that work on your behalf. You need to rest in Him. Don't rest in yourself. Don't trust in your own merit. Trust in Christ alone. He is the one who has worked on your behalf. So, that's holiness and child-rearing, holiness in the calendar. Thirdly, holiness in communion with God. Notice what he says in this next verse here, in verse 4. He says, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am Yahweh, your God. Here's another prohibition. He says, do not turn to idols. Now the word he uses here that's translated idol, the meaning of the root is to be weak or insufficient. And so this is highlighting the, the, the weakness of these gods that the surrounding Canaanites had been trusting in and as well as the, the Egyptians where the Hebrews had been coming from, the, the, the inadequacy of these gods. He, he says, do not turn to these idols, these weak things. And he says, or make for yourselves molten gods. What is a molten god? It sounds like a certain flavor god. I'd like to order one molten god. And, and there is a kind of mockery taking place here, right? You're making for yourself molten gods. And the idea of a molten god is, is you know, when you, would, when you would shape metal, you would often melt it down. You would make it, melt it down so it was soft so that you can make an image. But if, if you're making a molten god, you're the one who's made it, right? I mean, that, that's exactly the mockery of the prophet Isaiah when, when he says, you know, you, you cut down a tree and, you know, you, you slice up the wood and, you know, for part of it you make an end table and then the other part you make an image and you bow down to it. And, and he's mocking them. He's making fun of idolatry. Bowing down for something that you have created. And, and, and keep in mind, the ancient Near Eastern peoples regarded their deities as powerful living beings that they worship gods through the idols identified with them. That, that they saw the idols as representations of the deities. 
and they were believed to somehow partake of the divine essence or somehow to be a kind of portal for the divine essence. By contrast, the God of Israel here is refusing to be identified with any material representations. So what commands is this parallel to when we think of the the Big Ten? The first two, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to it or serve it for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is a command against idolatry or images when engaging in worship of the true and living God. And again, this is, think of the world around the Israelites. The Egyptian world, and all kinds of gods. The Canaanite world, the, the area they were going to, had all kinds of pagan gods. And the true and living God knew that these pagan gods would regularly seduce his people. And so he's telling them, no, 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 don't go down this route. You are in covenant relationship with me. You're to be devoted to me. You're to be in communion with me. Well, how do we apply this as new covenant Christians? Now, probably none of you are tempted to worship Marduk or Ra or some other god. But nonetheless, do we not live in a very pluralistic culture with all kinds of different religions and isms out there? Sometimes you driving along and you see those coexist bumper stickers with all the different symbols of the different religions. And, and, you know, we do need to understand that this country was founded on principles of religious tolerance, that that there's kind of an agreement that you can believe what you believe and I'm not going to kill you. It it works well for religious freedom, you know. But that... Tolerance in our day and age has morphed into a a kind of belief that all ideas, all religions, all claims to deity are equally valid claims, which is a tolerance that Christians cannot accept. And also, by the way, is a tolerance that is intolerant of anybody that's intolerant. In case you hadn't figured that out, you will before long that the tolerance of the world only goes so far. And so, certainly in the midst of this pluralistic culture, we need to be resolved as Christians to uphold the banner of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus Himself, our Master, our Lord, has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. I mean, even in the context of 1 John, where John is 
is, is writing to combat certain false ideas about Jesus that, that you know, that, that, that perverted his human nature. It's in that context that John writes in John 5, 21 in 1 John, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I think in that context, he's saying, keep on guard for any false imitations of Jesus. But also, I would say for us as believers today, we need to uphold the exclusivity of Christ and the uniqueness and that there's only one true God, just as the Israelites did. But we also need to guard against idolatries in our own heart. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel 14 and verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. They have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be inquired by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says Lord Yahweh, any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will be, will be brought to give him an answer in light of it and in light of the multitude of his idols in order to seize the house of Israel by their heart, those who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore, says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Lord Yahweh, turn back, turn away, from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. So God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is saying, turn away from your heart idols. Well, what is a heart idol? A heart idol is something that you love in your heart that competes with your love for the true and living God. Something that you're tempted to be devoted to above the Lord God. Basically, it's anything you're willing to sin to get or sin if you don't get. And so we're right where the French reformer said when he said the human heart is a veritable factory of idols. That we produce idols in our heart that compete with our devotion to the Lord that we need to regularly be crucifying. James speaks of this when he asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not, you do not uh, receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? So James speaks of this kind of heart idolatry that often uh, rears its ugly head in the context of conflict. When the human heart says, I want to be respected, I want to be right, I want comfort. I want you to speak to me a certain way. And then anger bursts forth. 
Well, what's going on there? In the heart, you're longing for something more than you're longing for God. You're loving something more than you're loving God. Some common American idols are things like comfort and ease. We love our comforts and ease. And, and this gets tricky because obviously comfort and ease are not inherently evil. I mean, would you rather pain and suffering? But when you're loving comfort and ease more than you're loving the Lord and you're willing to sin to get it or sin if you don't get it, then you know it's become an idol. Respect, approval, acceptance from others, love of the approval of others, it's a common one. Control, or at least the illusion of control. We're not really the ones in control, but we like to think that. When we feel like we don't have control, we get anxious and fearful. Friends, God wants Him to be at the center of our affections, the center of our love. Uh, all sin is ultimately related to some kind of idolatry of the heart that needs to be dealt with. And so, friend, what is it for you? Is it a love of comfort, a love of approval and acceptance with others, love of pleasure, love of money? God's calling you to turn to Him in repentance. To seek to grow in your love for Him so much that these heart idols don't compete so narrowly with your love for Christ. But not only holiness in child-rearing holiness in the calendar, holiness, and communion with the Lord, but fourthly, holiness and costly sacrifice. Verses 4 through 8 here, he says, Do not turn to, to idols for, yourself, uh, for yourselves, or make for yourselves molten images. I am Yahweh your God. Verse 5, Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day. But what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it, on the, eats it will bear his iniquity for he has profaned the holy thing of Yahweh that person shall be cut off from his people. So here we have a command related to the peace offerings. Now, just a little bit of review about the offerings. Remember that the offering in, in Leviticus chapter 1 was the burnt offering. That was primarily a substitutionary offering for one sin bearing the guilt. 
And then after that, there was the grain offering or the tribute offering where this was the, where you would bring, uh, you know, muffins or things like that. And this was a way of demonstrating your homage before the Lord. But then this third offering, the peace offering, which was often placed on top of the burnt offering, it was more of a kind of celebratory offering of the peace that one had in his relationship with God. And there was also different categories of this offering that are laid out in chapter 7, that this offering you would give uh, when in, as part of a fulfilling of a vow. It was part of a thank offering when you just wanted to give a kind of free will offering of thanks to the Lord. Just say, Lord, thank you for your kindnesses towards me. And this was the one offering, the only offering, whereby a worshiper could actually partake of the offering. The whole, the, the, the whole burnt offering, all of it was consumed on the altar. But the peace offering, part of it would be burned unto Yahweh on the altar. Part of it would be given to the priest. And part of it would be given to the worshiper. And not only that, the worshiper could give that meat to his friends and family. This was a church barbecue. This was a way in which people could come together and enjoy this cooked meat and celebrate the peace that they have with Almighty God. And so God here gives instructions that you could eat the meat on the first day and you could have a doggy bag for the second day. But you need to put an expiration date on that doggy bag. Because if it goes to day three, the doggy bag needs to be burned. We say, what's the significance of this? Well, certainly the peace offering signifies the peace and fellowship the Israelites had with God, the celebrating of it. It highlights that God was concerned that he be worshipped in the way that he had prescribed worship. That they weren't allowed to eat leftovers from the sacrifice from last week. Only from the previous day. And so for New Covenant believers, this again highlights... The peace that is available for us in Christ. Each of those sacrifices highlighted something related to the gospel. And certainly this sacrifice, perhaps even alluded to in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, when the apostle Paul speaks of you who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That we now have access to God in the spirit through Jesus that the temple veil has been torn and now one can enjoy peace with God and is to enjoy peace with God but not to allow that enjoyment of peace to hinder your relationship with God. And so friends, God is calling us to holiness of life in these four different areas. Let's pray.